0: All right, I'm going to be starting a five-week series. It's probably going to happen over six weeks, but a five-week series called Distinctions of Crossroads. Now, when I say distinctions of crossroads, I'm not necessarily saying that, that we differ in, in what I'm going to be presenting with other Christian churches, Bible-believing, Jesus, uh, Jesus-following churches in the area. But what it means by distinctions is it's things that God has given to us that, uh, that when you come among us, you'll begin to experience those. You'll begin to experience these things. And when I preach about them, you're, you're like, well, that's expected or that's common. But as I'm finding, it's not always uh, necessarily emphasized. In, in other places that I've been and with other churches. But it's things that God has given us, and I've called them five distinctions of crossroads. It's like every family has characteristics. Uh, you, you can go visit a family, and they have certain characteristics. You visit another family, they have certain characteristics. You visit another family, they have some different. And they all three may love Jesus. It's just different characteristics. And so that's kind of the idea behind um, uh, this, uh, this series, the five distinctions of crossroads. Today... We're going to discuss what it means to be a presence-centered church. A presence-centered church. Back in way back in 1988, I was um, I was praying about uh, going into full-time ministry. Now, when I use that term full-time ministry, I actually hesitate to use it because. It's not really that uh, you really are are stepping into the fullness of God when you pastor a church or start a church or whatever, because the the honest fact is everybody that's a follower of Christ is in full-time ministry. We just get paid from different sources that's it. Everybody's in full-time ministry. So I hesitate to use that term, but a kind of a lack of of understanding what it meant. But anyhow, God was just calling me in to to set apart and and get some schooling for pastoring. And I happened to be reading Isaiah during that time. And some of my family members were trying to talk me out of what we were doing. And God was trying to talk me into what we were doing. You ever had that happen? (laughs) You know, certain people around you're trying to talk you out of it, but God's talking you into it. And so I was reading in Isaiah 49, and really, I'm not going to read that passage. We don't really have it on screen. But what happened to me in that moment is that God began to, in a couple of verses, began to show me the future of what he had for me and what he had for the church that he was building through Wanda and I. And, and, it, it, and, and honestly, what happened in 1988 is still unfolding today in 2024. It's just amazing. And so I paid attention to that, having not stepped into it yet, but having stepped into a portion of it, I say, oh God, you said it way back when. And so then when we started the church in 1999, and again, we started probably like any other church would start. You know, we were just preaching common messages and stuff. But then in, in February of, uh, of 2011, something different took place that led us into this distinction of being present centered And that's what I want to kind of highlight today. And I'll get to that story here in a few moments. But I want to start, really, by talking about being a present centered church. Well, first of all, let me, let me just back up a little bit and say... Well, if you're not present centered, then what are the other options? Well, you can be a doctrine centered church, and it's all about right doctrine. You can be a worship centered church. It's all about worship. You can be a word centered church. It's all about the word. You got to re- read the word and know the word, and confess the word. You can be a prayer centered church. Everything revolves around prayer. You just pray and pray more and Pray more and pray more. It can be a vision church, a vision-centered church. It's like, you know, go into all the world. Let's do it. Let's go for it. Let's, let's grow God church and vision-centered church. But what I've discovered is that when you're a presence-centered church, all of those things that I just mentioned come out of the presence of God. And it's way more fun and way more fruitful to do it from the presence of God than trying to do it in an artificial way that sometimes it's done. All right? So those are the options. Now we look at present-centered. First thing I want to do is ta- look at the history of what it means to to uh, value the presence of God, and uh, as we as we open up here, there's a verse that I pulled out of Exodus 33, verses 14 and 15, where God and Moses are having a conversation, and what I realized that when these two verses really come out of chapter 32, and then. 33 is this this conversation i'm going to bring you into but a little backdrop on 32 moses is on the mountains getting the 10 commandments from god the first time and he and god are working this thing out and suddenly god says moses you better go back down to the camp because they are off track big time Moses like what's going on god says you better go down and find out so he and joshua head down off the mountain and what do you know the people they they're like moses disappeared we don't know where he's at. We don't know when he's coming back. We don't know what he's doing. We need a God to serve. They had gods in Egypt. Let's build an Egyptian God. So they took off all their jewelry, threw it in the fire, and out comes a golden calf. Yeah, right. <laughs> I doubt it. Somebody had to carve that thing. Anyhow, they start worshiping and singing this golden calf. And so Moses comes down. He's furious. God's upset. I mean, there's just, I mean it's, we're headed for a crash. And so God is just like, he's, he's really jealous for his people. I mean, we, he's jealous for you. We go, we go straying. He's like, he gets upset about that. And so the way that God handles it here, again, kind of humanizing him a little bit, is he said, man, I'm just going to wipe out all these people, and I'm going to start with you, Moses. I'm going to start with you, family. Moses is like, no, 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 you can't do that. I mean, I got a new, uh, a new discovery of the, the intercession of Moses. I mean, he stood up to God and said, you can't do that, God. And here's two reasons why. Number one is the Egyptians are going to go see there. I knew that he was that kind of God. Took them out in the wilderness and killed them all. And he can't do that for number one. And the second reason, you made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you were going to take the people out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land, and then you're going to kill them all in the wilderness. You can't do that either. You break your promise. God says, oh, yeah, I remember that. No, as if he'd forgotten Maybe he wanted to see what kind, of, what kind of person Moses was. So then, so the next stage, and here we get to, to chapter 33, is that God says, okay, here's the deal. Um, I'm going to make provision. I'm going to send an angel. I'm going to make provision for you and the people to go into the promised land, but I'm not going. My presence isn't going to go with you. Moses is like, No! That's, that's not going to happen either. He says, because God, if you're not going with us, I'm not going either. Just dug his heels in the sand and said, forget it. And so he and God got it worked out. And he, God says, listen, he said, they may do something stupid along the way and I'll just wipe them all out. So I don't want to go. I want to protect the people. And Moses is like, no, you're going. Because if I'm going to go, you're going to go. <laughs> And uh, I love that about Moses. I I mean, that's like, wow, he stood up to God. I mean, it's just, in a sense. Now, you know, again, you got to take this all into context because obviously God's in charge and Moses is following along. But I, I love their dialogue. I love their realness. And so this is what he says. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you. So God God consented to go with him. He said, and I will give you rest. So when you're in the presence of God, you're in in rest. Whatever you're doing, you're in rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. So the history of being presence-centered is that Moses valued the presence of God. And the question is, do we value the presence of God to the same degree that Moses did? Now, he wasn't the only one, but it's really a question for us to, to, uh, to um, uh, look in, in our lives. Now, Moses came back, and uh, he, he said this. He said, because your presence is a distinguishing factor. And he says in verse 16, he lists two reasons why God needed to go with them. And his presence needed to be with them. He says in verse 16, the first one is How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? So Moses understood that when God was with them, miracles happened, favor happened, victory happened. Uh, promises uh, were fulfilled. Moses understood all of that when God's presence is with, and he said, listen, if you're not with us, if your presence is not with us, we're not going to experience any of those things. It's going to be out of our own desire, out of our own will, out of our own striving, and that's not going to work. That's going to wear us out. So God, again, he's hearing Moses give these these reasons why God's presence needs to go. The second one he said. He says well what else will distinguish me and your people. From all the other people on the earth. That's an interesting distinction. God's presence. Moses said. Is the distinguishing factor. To, to make a delineation between God's people. And all the other tribes on the earth. That we're worshiping God. And following their rules. I mean Israel had their rules and their God. And the other tribes had their rules and their God. But yet it wasn't working out too well for them. And working very well for the Israeli people. And, and so he makes these distinctions. And the question I have to you. Is a, if you're a follower of Christ this, today. The question to you is. What is the distinction in your life. That makes you different from the unbelievers that you relate to. What is the distinction? I was having a conversation with a pastor from another state, and uh, he said that when he came to his church about four years ago, he said it was very common in conversation in his church that people would cuss. As they would have conversations in the church, they would just swear. And he said it bothered him. And he um, kind of prayed on it and said, God, what are we going to do about this? Because that's the distinction that, uh, that, you know, the word says, don't let any unwholesome thing come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up and profitable for those who listen. And so he did something very clever. He was in the pulpit one Sunday morning, and he said, you know, he just came out with it. He said, you know, he said, I hear conversations with you in the church, and you swear, you cuss. But you get all nervous and, 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 and upset when somebody speaks in tongues in church. Why is that? Why are you comfortable with natural language and you're uncomfortable with spiritual language? And he said all the cussing in the church stopped. <laughs> now they probably cussed in business or home, but at least it stopped in the church. But again, that's just one small example of, of my question to you is what is the distinguishing factor of your life from those that aren't following Christ? And there should be something. There should be one or two or three. I just use that as a small example. But again, we should have a distinction that others don't have. And we should recognize that. Moses said it was the presence of God on his life in, 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 the, in the camp. If you've ever seen a picture, I, I don't know uh, if we have that picture, but if you've ever seen a picture of uh, the, uh, the children of Israel camping, and, and in the middle is the, the, the tent where God was, and you'll see the cloud coming up. So actually, that's how they traveled. They traveled with the presence of God in the center of, of their lives. And when they camped, the presence of God was the center of who they were as a people. And, and that's, that's how it worked. They had a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So the, the, um, uh, the, Moses said the presence was a distinguishing factor. Now, God's presence was highly valued. I mentioned about Moses. Let me give you three other examples real quick. Cain. I don't know if you know about him, but Cain brought, he, he did, actually, it was, he didn't bring a, a proper first fruits offering to the Lord. His brother Abel did. And God said, uh, Cain, your first fruits aren't acceptable. Instead of, he said, you can make it right. Instead of making a right, Cain says, I'm going to kill my brother. And, and yet, in chapter 4, verse 14 of Genesis, the one thing that Cain said, I don't know if I can live without, is the presence of God. He was in rebellion against God, and yet he made the statement, I don't know if I can live without the presence of God in my life. Wow. So, King David is another one. I mean, he's, you could say he's a self-made man. I mean, God favored him, and he killed a lion and a bear and giants, and people followed him, and he had victory, and, and, and you know, he was king. and I mean, he, he had all the reasons where, why he didn't need God. And yet, when he got to Jerusalem and he was crowned king, he said, the next thing I'm going to do, I'm going to bring the presence of God into this city because I don't want to rule here without the presence of God being here. Well, he didn't do his homework very well and got a guy killed the first time he tried to bring the presence in and so he didn't give up he tried again and he got the presence of God into the city but he valued the presence of God in the city which was exampled by the ark of the covenant and then Solomon was another David's son he built this magnificent temple he was the he was the guy that had the most wealth and the most wisdom of any human being that lived in the world ever and yet, he said, i built this temple, but however, it's just going to be a building unless the presence of God is in it. And then it will be a house of worship. And so after he built the building, he had amazing prayers. You can read in 1 Kings 8 about how he's inviting God's presence to come. And God came and filled the house where he had built, and it became a house of worship, not just a beautiful temple. The word picture here given on presence is face-to-face. You have a face-to-face encounter with God. Now, right away, people hear that, and, you know, Bible scholars, they're like, on the one hand, the Bible says you can't see God and live. On the other hand, it says you see people like Moses having a face-to-face encounter with God. How's that? What's going on with that? I mean, in one sense, you say you're going to die, in another sense, you are know, they're having a conversation face-to-face. What's the difference? Well, I would interpret it this way. I would say that in our physical bodies, if we physically saw God, which is spirit, saw God, we would die. I believe that. But yet, spiritually, we can experience the presence of God, have an encounter with Him, so much so, it's as if we're seeing God face to face, and yet we're not physically but we know he's so real that when we encounter him, he changes us. Now, I've had, I was, I was looking back at my life. I've, I would have, I've had many encounters with God face-to-face. But I would say I've had three vital face-to-face encounters with God. What happened during those times, and I'm not going to go into those, but what happened during those times is that every one of those changed me When after I had that encounter. And it changed me so much that the person that I was coming out of that encounter was different from the person going into that encounter. And that's what the presence does. The presence will either make you run after God more, or it'll make you run away from God faster. That's what happened in the New Testament. People came to Jesus with a genuine encounter, and he spoke the truth, and they ran away. They're like, I don't want to hear it. But that's okay with God. God says, I don't want lukewarm people. I'd rather you be hot or cold than somebody that's lukewarm. And so that's what happened to me, a face-to-face encounters with God. Not literally, but I experienced him in such a way that I got transformed and came out of that a different person than when I went in. That would be an example of having face-to-face time with God. So in order, it's just a little, little, little history in the Bible. Now I want you to give a little crossroads history. In August of 2011, one and I attended a seminar. It was called uh, Presence-Centered Community Transformation. I'd never heard that word before. I had always been a presence-centered person, pastor, but I'd never heard that term before, that God could actually come in his presence and change communities. I had actually watched some videos in the 90s, but I didn't have any grid to put it in. I I just could, theologically, couldn't couldn't figure it out. I thought it was rare that God would do that. I thought it was random. God's just up there going, oh, okay, I'll just select this city. And after that two-day seminar, I realized, wait a minute, this is our responsibility to invite God to come and fill the place. So I came out of that, and I told the instructor, "I I want you to help us. I want you to mentor us. Through this, and she agreed to do that, and so we invited her to come. And she said, "But you can't do it just one church." She said, "That's not community transformation. You have to go to all the other pastors that you have a relationship with and ask them if they want to participate in it as well." I said, "Okay." I had a relationship with some, and so I called those that I thought might be interested, and we gathered at Old Daily Grind over there in Jubilee, in the back room. It's closed now; it's not operating. And I shared what I what I knew to share. And I knew God was in that place because suddenly pastors start crying. And they're like, yes, we're in this together. I'm like humbled. I'm like, wow, really? And they're like, yes, we're in this together. I'm like, wow. So they say a picture's worth a thousand words, right? So I'm going to give you 5,000 words in about 30 seconds. All right, here's the first one. That's this room. We have 375 people in this room, and there's 200 seats in the auditorium right now. Next picture. There we are on stage. The stage was full. Little worship team, pastors, wives. Next one. Here we are in the foyer. Can't fit them all in. Put chairs in the foyer. Next one. Here we are on the steps. Not enough seating. So let's sit on the steps. Next one. What does that picture represent? That picture represents hunger. That's what it represents. Hunger. If you want the presence of God, you're going to have to change your appetite. That's what that represents. It represents being hungry for God. In the next 21 days, we journeyed through as five congregations, and we invited God's presence to come. We probably saw a measure of God's presence come. Different people would tell us about what they sensed around Winchester and so forth. But I know coming out of that whole, whole thing, and now uh, do the math. I don't know, you know, 15, 12, 13 years. Boy, I'm all over the map here. Billy, do the math for me, man. Uh, how many years later, let's just do it vaguely. How many years later, I'm still changed. We're still changed. We have people walk into this building and go, the presence of God is here. And there's nothing going on. Except he's here. I didn't solicit it. I didn't ask for it. It just happens over and over again. And so sometimes we take for granted who we have in this place. But you have, to, you have to be hungry for God in order for his presence to come and stay. Let's look at that real briefly here. Matthew 5, 6. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled so it's evident here that, that Jesus uh, says that if you hunger and thirst after him, you're going to get filled with his presence. And, and then uh, I, I think that, um, that um, what, it, what does it look like for God's presence to visit a city or a town or an area? I had this conversation. Actually, it wasn't a conversation. This pastor, local pastor was sharing with me. A testimony last night I was at a meeting. And um, he said, Bobby, you'll love this story. And I go, bring it on. He said, last week I had a family show up at our church. And within short conversation, found out this, they had never been in a church before. Wow. But they showed up last Sunday. And um, he further said, I wonder if they know Jesus. Found out they knew Jesus. Tell me about this. The husband said, oh, a year ago I told my wife to go buy a Bible because I wanted to read the Bible. So he said, I read the Bible, and I had some questions about marriage and about divorce and about raising kids and about this. And he said, the Bible had all the answers to that which I was seeking. And and I thought, wow, this is true. I just believe it. He said, so I, I baptized my whole family. And I understand the Bible enough to know that I'm I'm not supposed to just stay at home and worship with my little natural family. I'm supposed to be a part of the family of God. And so I looked on your website and I saw your doctrine and I agree with 99% of it. The pastor's thinking, I wonder what the 1% of it. He said now was not that question, time to ask that question. And then he said this, he said, so we came here this morning and I want to know how I can serve. Nobody went out and did a crusade. Nobody evangelized. He just told his wife. Something, something prompted him to say, I want a Bible. I want to read it. I want to know what's in it. I want to know this God. And then he obeyed it and followed it. Even to the point where he showed up to a church that he didn't agree with 100% and wanted to serve his first time in. Amazing. So, when you share a testimony, just as I've done, what a testimony does is do it again God. So as I've just shared this testimony it's very possible that God's presence is hovering over another couple or another individual or another family and he's doing the same thing that he did with that couple right now just because I shared this testimony. That's what it means to be in a place where his presence is active. He just knows who's hungry and shows up and Gives them what their appetite is desiring. So we have to ask our question what appetite do we have? There's um, appetites of the heart. You know, you and I were created to crave. We were. We were created to crave. We're going to crave something. We're going to crave after the things of the Lord. We're going to crave after things of self. We're going to crave after things of God. You and I are going to crave something. That's just how we're built, how we're created. And the things that are related to self and the world, it's like you know a sugar fix or a soda or, you know, or ice cream. You know, it's good for the moment, but it's not going to last. In fact, it actually can have a detrimental effect upon us if we continue a special diet that way. But when we go after the things of the Lord... The spiritual things of God. Not that we don't enjoy the physical things, but the physical things take on less of a, a, a of a craving or an understanding. It's just it's what we do rather than rather. Than, oh, I gotta have this, and yes, I'm going to watch the football game this afternoon. Okay, I, don't, don't don't put me in a category of, oh, I can't watch the Super Bowl. Now some of you may object to me, but that's okay. That's what I'm going to do. All right, I think God's in it. <laughs> so. Galatians 5 and uh, 13 through 17 talks about our cravings. Here's what it says. So I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So you are not, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Let me do something maybe dangerous for you Bible scholars out there. Yet I think it's permissible. I think we can exchange the word Spirit for presence. And and, and be perfectly in, in, in contrast of what it means. So I say, walk in the presence, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the presence... And the presence is what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not that you do not do whatever you want. But if you are led by the presence, you are not under law. I think it's perfectly permissible for us to marry the words spirit and presence together. So the question we have is, what are we craving in our life? See. God's presence is either attracted or repelled. It's either attracted or repelled. Meaning that God just doesn't show up just because He wants to. He shows up because of hungry hearts of His people. That's what happens. It's so essential. If there's any revival that you, you, that you uh, uh, attend or you go in the world, I guarantee you there's two components that will be happening where revival is taking place. Number one, there'll be prayer. And number two, there'll be spiritual hunger. Those two components together will be evident. And God will just show up because that's what he does. In the same way, if people come together and they have in mind, well, who has the degrees, and who has the word, and who has this, and jockeying for position and competition, then God's going to be repelled by that. He's not going to show up. You may, you may have your own show, but God's not going to show up because he's repelled by that kind of appetite of competition and, 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 uh, and flesh. He's just not going to show up. And so we have to understand what attracts God and what repels God. Let's look at James James 4, 7 and 8. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I love James. He's a direct communicator, isn't he? You wouldn't want him to be your counselor, though. He would say, what's your problem? Stop it. And then he would have a prayer, and the session would be done. So I don't think James is a great counselor, but he's a direct communicator. But notice when he writes who takes the initiative. Did you catch that? Submit yourself. Who? Us. Then God. Resist the devil. What happens? He'll flee. Why? Because God's presence is with you. Come near to God. Our job. Come near to God. Then he will draw near to you. Wash your hands. That's stuff the world entices us with. And purify your hearts. I'm going to have the appetites of the things of God. You double-minded. Wow. Let's move on here. Isaiah 59, 1-4. through Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They, are conceived, they conceive trouble and give birth to evil. See, God's problem in coming to us is not his problem it's our problem <laughs> we're the ones that give the invitation we're the ones that has the appetite that he's attracted to from our hearts and that's what he loves and that's why he draws in close to us psalm 24 3 through 5 who may ascend the mountain of the lord who may stand in his holy place in other words who may stand in his presence the one who has Clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by what is false. They will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. So what's an idol? It's anything that's standing in the way of you believing that that is going to satisfy you in a way that only God can. And we're all enticed Enticed with those things, we're all enticed. If we had more money, we'd be more satisfied. We'd have more peace. We'd, 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 uh, you know, be happier. We're all enticed with that. But is that true? Just go to the richest people in the world and see if those they have those characteristics. No, it's usually just the opposite. Does it mean we shouldn't have wealth and have? No, not at all. It's just the perspective that we carry. Because the more God gives us the more do we get to give away and help others and bless others so again idols are not golden calves but they're things that entice us that we put in front sometimes it's just priority they're not bad things it's just how we have them prioritize in our life that they can become a idol finally we reached the habitation we looked at history the hunger and now the habitation I'm in the Ephesian passage that I kind of put up, uh, up front there for us to be kind of our anchor verse. I finally made it there. In Ephesians 2, 17 through 21, I'm using the contemporary English version, says, Christ came and pe- preached peace to you Gentiles who were far from God and peace to us Jews who were near to God. Because of Christ, all of us can come to the Father by one spirit. You Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens with everyone else who belongs to the family of God. You are like a building with the apostles and prophets as the foundation and with Christ as the most important stone. Christ is the one who holds the building together, making it grow into a holy temple for the Lord. And you are a part of that building. Christ has built As a place for God's own spirit or presence to live. So as we look at these five verses together. One of the first things that we note is that everyone's equal before God. We're all in need of a savior. We're all sinners. We're all born that way. That's just a fact. I don't care how many degrees you have or how many letters are on the front of your name or the back of your name. Or you know how important you are or how much education you have or how smart you think you are. We all need Jesus. That's just as simple as that. We're all, all there. Even the Jews needed Jesus. They thought they had it all together, but they needed Jesus. The Gentiles knew they needed Jesus, but they didn't know how to find him. Then Jesus started a new race. He said that when you believe in me, it's no longer about Jew and Gentile and black and white and, 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 and ethnic background and experiences that you've had. It's, it's no longer about any of that. It's about the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And then there's there's leadership and things like that. That's in the Bible as well. It's not that everybody's equal in that regard. People lead. People follow. And then some people uh, that are following start to lead. And some people that are leading start to follow. And depending on what field you're in. You know. It's, it's just we're following Christ. And And so Jesus... Started a new race in that way. And he said, everybody's in. But then he goes on in verse 20. And he starts talking about this building that he's building. And, and then and the construction that when God's people get together. He says that you're, you're going to be in one place. And my presence is going to be with you. That's going to be the distinguishing factor. It's not about who's up front. It's not about who can 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 worship and who can't it's it's not about who is able to to do certain things well and and who can't it's about the fact that my presence is there and everybody's there to serve one another and serve God that we're there to obey And out of obedience, fruit begins to come forth in our lives that is a blessing to people and a blessing to God. And unity begins to form because we're there not to please one another, but we're here to please God. He's the the honored guest in our midst. You know, sometimes I remind the congregation, why did you come this morning? You know, did you come... Just for the worship? Did you come to hear who was preaching today? Or did you come to worship Jesus? Period. See, it's really hard in our our world because we're so attached to personalities and how they do and we connection and I get all that. But at the same time, ladies and gentlemen, Don't forget your first and foremost priority, wherever you go to church, is to worship Jesus. Regardless of who's on the worship team, regardless of who's preaching, regardless if you were greeted well, regardless if your kids were taking care of the nursery well, regardless that they have something for your youth. And all those things are a blessing and needed and purposeful, but your main purpose is you come together, whether it's two or three, or whether it's two or three thousand, you come together to worship Jesus. And that should be our goal. And that's what attracts his presence. It's not about who or what or when or who's there, who's not coming. It's about, is Jesus there? Is Jesus there in the midst? And that should be our main goal and purpose. You know, it says here in verse 22, let me just read that and kind of conclude today he says and you are a part of that building god has built as a place for god's own spirit to live you are a part of that building that's what i want to emphasize it's so easy for us to dismiss the fact of our bodies being considered a holy temple of the lord We have something we believe, but we forget that we've received someone. And that is with us. And so that when we get together in a group like this, there's a whole bunch of God's presence collecting together in our hearts, expressing to God his goodness. And we so easily think, oh, my body doesn't matter. And yet, Paul specifically states, it does matter. In fact, he he goes on further in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. He said, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Our bodies matter because that's what houses the presence within. Sometimes we, we uh, forget that. I was with uh, a group. And they were praying over my left eye. That needs healing. And one, the one praying said this. And it changed the way I pray for my eye. After that moment. And here's what he said. He said God. Your eye. That you put in Bobby. We ask for healing. He said your eye God. That you put in this body. We declare healing. That changed the way. I was praying about my eye. But it's really God's eye. I didn't bake it. You didn't either. So sometimes these small ways of thinking. That God brings to us. And he just opens up a new understanding of his love for us and his desire to be with us. Three things here. Jesus came to dwell with us and stay with us. So good. He came to dwell with us and stay with us. John one fourteen, Ephesians 2.22. Second thing is that... Um, um, yeah. Second thing is... I just lost it here. There we go. Nope. What's the second thing? Oh, yeah, God doesn't just dwell in places, but now in people. There we go. Found it. <laughs> just turn around, right? The voice behind you. So, you know, I, I believe that God does dwell in places, but it's because of the people that gathered there are worshiping Him and His presence lingers after the people that worshiped him left. We have people that come to, to a crossroads and, and they're like, walk in. Nothing's going on besides, they're like, uh, God's presence is here. Unsolicited. We don't ask. That's what they share with us. A presence-centered house. He should. We should pick up. We should sense. We should, wow, there's gods in this place. I would hope that would be in every Christian church. So, Jesus came to dwell not just in buildings, but he came to be in people, and that's his primary purpose. And you read about that in John chapter 4, where the woman at the well, wow, can you imagine that? A face-to-face encounter. She was looking for the place. Is it, God, do we go over to this place or that place to worship? Jesus said, no, it's not going to be this place or that place. It's going to be the worshipers who are going to worship in spirit and in truth wherever they're at. And she said, man, I don't understand that. I don't get it, but I know one thing. When the Messiah comes, he's going to explain all this to, uh, to us. And Jesus said, you're looking at him right here in front of you. Woo! Talk about a face-to-face encounter. Changed her life. She came to get water and left her water jar and went ran back to the town and said, we found the Messiah. Come out and meet him. That's a life change. Not only has her life changed, the whole town has changed. They came out and... Jesus hung with them two days. Wow, two days with Jesus. And then in John 14, 16, it says, I will ask of the Father and he will give you another advocate to help and will be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because the world neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Wow, after the resurrection, we got filled Finally, his presence is expressed through obedience, fruit, and unity. Obedience, fruit, and unity. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. John 17, Jesus is praying and he said, listen, my prayer is not not just for me. My prayer is for those that will come after me. And that they might have the same unity that I have with you, Father, they would have with me and with you. What an amazing thought. That we can have the same unity that Jesus had with his heavenly father. We can have with Jesus. And our heavenly father. Wow. It's possible with his presence. Absolutely. Jesus said it. So summarizing. We have this. We have first of all the history. Of becoming a presence centered church. We didn't start out that way. We didn't know what we were doing. We are just trying to figure it out along the way. But then God says No. I'm going to mark you this way. And we've never been the same since. I've never been the same since. It's one of those face-to-face times in history that changed me. And, uh, yeah, here we are today. In order to continue his presence and continue a presence-centered church, we need to stay hungry for him. We'll have to examine our appetites. We can get hungry for other things, things of the flesh, things of this world. They get priorities, get, you know, all wrapped around different ways than they should be. I'm not saying you need to show up at church every time the doors open. I'm just saying, what do you crave? What's your appetite? Is it for the things of the Lord? Is it for other things? Again, it's just a question. It's not something we all have to answer. But if we're interested in the presence, we have to stay hungry. And finally, God desires a habitation among his people. Not touch and go. He's not into touch and goes, you know, like the airplane. He he wants to land. And he wants to stay. That's that's his goal. That's his desire. I want to be. I want to be where you are. You know, sing that song. We want to be where God God is. And God wants to be where we're at. Because we're his people. And when he's... When he's habitating, when we're cohabitating together in the right way, right use of the term. When we're, when we're cohabitating together with God, we'll be obeying him as much as we understand. We'll be obeying him. We'll be bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in our lives. How we're parenting, how we're, uh, you know, how we're leading at work, how we're, uh, how we're treating our spouse and kids. We'll be, we'll be bearing fruit in that. And then as a result of obedience and bearing fruit, then people will pick up the unity in that. Wow, you have such unity. You have such unity in your life. Where'd you get that? Everybody's coming unglued and you're calm. Where'd you get that? Again, sometimes I think that we as followers of Jesus haven't distinguished ourselves enough that the world's asking questions. I'm saying we don't have problems but Jesus says we're overcomers we endure we have grace so is there something in your life that needs to be shifted or changed maybe you need to come to Jesus this morning because you can't do it on your own (laughs) there's no way absolutely no way that's called religion and you want to run from religion it's called works on your own it's impossible so all you do is get condemned but when Jesus is leading you it's family it's fun it's amazing present centered church let's continue being one amen let's pray Father, thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for reminding us of how you not only came, but you want to dwell with us. And I pray, Father, that as we examine our lives and maybe our history with you, of realizing that there were times that we had face-to-face encounters with you and yet maybe have walked away. And now we're having another face-to-face encounter. And the Lord is speaking to say, my son, my daughter, I want you back because I love you. And we've got great things in store for you. But you're not going to see those great things unless we partner together. So God, I pray that you would just bring us back to that place of yielding to you again. I pray, Father, those of us that are here realizing we're running after the wrong things. Expecting spiritual fulfillment. While running after physical fulfillment. I pray, Jesus, you would show us that we do need physical things. But the spiritual things are so much more rewarding and blessing and powerful. And Father, I pray that you would show us in any area that we're being disobedient. That you would call us to just repent and decide to do it your way. And we would see the fruit of that come forth. And we would see the peace in our lives. That would just be beyond what we can ask or imagine. So Lord, just as a good, good father, show us where we're at and lead us forward. In Jesus' name, amen.